Today's reading is taken from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 1 to 4. And in the narrative, we're picking up right where we left off last Sunday, where the Lord hears Elijah's prayers, he sends rain upon the land, and then Elijah marches all the prophets of Baal into the Kishon Valley, where he has them executed. So hear the word of the Lord. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and Elijah left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Christ community. I'm sorry if you came here to hear Tyler, um, because I am obviously not Tyler. And so thank you for being here. Um, I am the new associate pastor at our Shawnee campus. And so I've been here for about a month and a half, and I've enjoyed doing this and being here. And I just got to brag on Tyler a little bit. Um, he is one of my dear, dear friends. And, you know, it's always hard moving to a new city that you've never left home and to have a familiar face and someone who's just probably my number one advocate here. I mean, it's amazing to have him. So I'm glad he's here with you and that he gets to be here and you get to embrace him when I can, okay? Um, but let's pray and then we'll begin. Lord, we just come before you humbly and we thank you. We thank you that you are here, that you speak to us. And so Lord, I pray that um, your spirit would just work in our hearts this morning. Lord, that we wouldn't only just be hearers of the word, but that we would also be doers of it. And I pray that as we leave here, that we would leave differently, transformed by the power of your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was August of 2003, and my little league team, the Atlanta Braves, made it to the championship. I mean, we were overjoyed. And even though we were about to face the best team in the league, that did not matter because we got to play in the game that everyone hopes to play in, right? I mean, even the big people, right? The big leagues, the majors, they want to play in that championship game. And I got to do it, folks. I got to play in that game. And so it's championship day. And we're playing the game, and it's two outs, and we're in the last inning. And my team is losing. Okay. And guess who was up to bat? That's right, the next Babe Ruth, your one and only Naya Cuevas was up to bat. And so I'm getting the batter's box, and I stand there, and I'm getting ready with my stance. And then first pitch strike, right? Because you never swing at the first pitch. And so then, all right, getting ready, fixing myself, and second pitch, swinging a miss strike two. I mean, we're down to the last strike. All I have to do is hit the ball to keep the game alive. And so I just step out a little bit, catch my breath. I'm so nervous. I get back in as a 12-year-old feeling the weight of the world on her shoulders. And then all of a sudden comes a pitch, and boom, 
I made contact. And so I was running for dear life. I mean, I'm running. I'm sprinting towards that first base. And I go, and I'm going, I'm going, I'm hyperventilating as fast as a 12-year-old can run. And then I find out that the ball was hit right to the second baseman. And you hope that as 12-year-olds, we're still not great at playing baseball or anything like that. So you're hoping the ball goes through the legs or that he just misses it. But no, he caught that ball. He threw it at first. And I was out. And I lost the game for my little league team. And I know you're feeling bad for me. You can feel it. That's fine. I mean, it was detrimental for me, right? And the, the victory, the, the feeling of winning and going to the championship and even hitting the ball soon dissipated because I lost the game. And some of you know what that feels like, right? I mean, maybe you lost the game for your team as a child. Or maybe you were doing so good at work and you knew that you were going to be the next one in line to get promoted and they were telling you, you're the one, you're the one, and then they didn't pick you. Or maybe as a parent, you trained your child up in the ways they need to go and you did the best job you can, but then you hear something that they did and it just crushes you. Or you work so hard in school and you're ready to get that GPA so you can make that honors, right? And then you realize you missed it by a point. Or they didn't pick you for the scholarship. And that mountaintop experience is immediately followed by the valley. And you see, this is where our story picks up this morning. I mean, Elijah just witnessed the most epic contest in history. I mean, 450 prophets of Baal could not make it rain. And Elijah's just there trash-talking them, right, mocking them. And that's kind of my favorite part of Scripture because that gives me warrant to trash-talk and mock people, right? Because, I mean, Elijah did it, so why can't I? You know what I mean? And so, you know, he's like, yeah, because because Baal wasn't showing up. Their God wasn't showing up, and neither could his prophets do anything. And so... God defeated the prophets of Baal. And God, through Elijah, makes it rain. What a victory, right? I mean, what a sight to witness. I mean, Elijah witnessed the miraculous hand of God and felt the power of God within his bones. But Ahab, the king of Israel, I mean, Israel's most evil king, in history, sped down to Jezreel to go and meet his wife Jezebel, the one who brings Baal worship, right, to Israel, the most evil queen at the time. And he tells her all that happened. And she wasn't thrilled about it. We all know a Debbie or Jack Downer, right? Am I right? I mean, can I have some hands? I mean, we all know, we all know those people who when there's something great happens, I mean, they just bring us back down. Right? And if we're honest, sometimes that's us, but we're not going to think about that, right? We're not going to think that we're sometimes that Debbie Downer. But I know you're thinking about that person right now when I said it. And so, you know, when something just great happens to us, right, we get a new job, or we get promoted, or we found that new restaurant, right, or we bought that cute new outfit, you know, ready to go out in the town and do all that. But then that one person just kind of is like, well, restaurants are too expensive anyway right? Or 
I have like five cuter outfits in that one, and guess what? I didn't even have to pay as much as you did for that, right? Or I got promoted last week to a better position than you did, and you're just like, come on. Like, seriously, why can't you just be happy with me? And so can you imagine someone who's worse than any other Debbie or Jack Dower, Downer? I mean, someone who's like Cinderella's stepmom, but on steroids, because she not only wants to make Elijah's life miserable, I mean, she gets someone, she gets a messenger, tells that messenger to tell Elijah that she swears by all that is holy, that by this time tomorrow, he will be like those prophets of Baal, dead. She was furious. And Elijah was overcome by fear, and he ran. I mean, Elijah's running for his life like the way I ran to that first baseline, you know what I mean? I mean, he's hyperventilating, he's running. And he leaves his servant at Beersheba, which is located in Judah, and he heads out into the wilderness. I mean, this man who witnessed the defeat of Baal and his prophets, I mean, the man who saw the dead raised and the poor provided for, the one who felt the power of God was afraid, and he ran. And after a day's journey into the wilderness, Elijah finds a broom tree, and it says in verse 4 that he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. It's easy to look at this verse and just to kind of pass over it because Elijah is not the first person or the first prophet in scripture to express his wish to die. I mean, in Moses in Numbers 11, verses 13 through 15, expresses his desire and wish to die. In Job 3, verse 11, Job, he doesn't want to be alive. He wants to die. And Jonah, we all know Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11, he just is over life. He's done. And so it kind of seems like the script for people in scripture is that they just want to die. And so we know that like God doesn't strike them dead at that moment. So what's the big deal, right? What's the big deal? But have you ever felt like this? Have you ever prayed that prayer just in deep, utter despair? I mean, some of you are probably praying and feeling this right now, ready to just throw in the towel, believing and thinking that this Christian life just isn't worth it, or that it's just not true, or just a bunch of waste of time. I mean, some of you in here are struggling with deep things, struggling with depression and anxiety, and even making it through the day is difficult. Asking questions like, why does it hurt so bad? Why are there so many injustices in this world? Why is it that every time we turn on the news, there's another tragedy, another problem, another issue? Why haven't I received the desires of my heart? Why did my loved one have to die? Why did I have to get this diagnosis? And you just can't bear the weight 
of sadness and pain you're feeling. And friends, can I just be honest with you for a second? The past month and a half, I felt like I've been in that despair moment. God, why did you send me here? Why did I have to leave my family and my friends? Telling God, I don't know if I can do this anymore. It's enough for me. And for Elijah, it's enough. He can't do it anymore. He wanted to die. And after he let out his cry, Elijah fell asleep. It's like when we're emotionally drained and exhausted, right? Usually a nap tends to come soon after. But what is God going to do? I mean, his servant just requested to die. What is God, the God of Israel, what is he going to do? And just then, an angel of the Lord comes, touches Elijah, and tells him to get up, eat, and drink. And in verse 6, it says, And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Elijah ate, drank, and fell back asleep. Then the angel touched him a second time and told Elijah to get up and eat and drink because this time the journey was going to be too great for him. And so Elijah got up, he ate, and he drank, and had the strength to journey in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. And what I want you to notice here is that the journey to Mount Horeb should not have taken 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, it was only about a six to 10 day journey. And in this text, we're reminded of the Israelites, right, when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Friends, that did not have to take 40 years. But what I want you to notice here is that God is doing something different. You see, God is granting Elijah the space and the time that he needs to wander. I mean, God cares more about his servant than he does about the most efficient way to get from point A to point B. He gave Elijah the time and space that he needed to go where he needed to go. And it wasn't about the fastest, who got there first, who's better. But it's about the reality that God works with his people in their process, whether it takes 40 years or 40 days. So what's the point? I mean, this is where our story ends. What's the point? What are we to take with us this morning? And the point is this. Even our despair doesn't disqualify us from God's compassionate care. Our despair doesn't drive God away, but friends, it draws him ever, ever so near. I mean, throughout the story, we heard how God's chosen prophet, Elijah, is just overcome by despair. 
I mean, he just witnessed the defeat of the prophets of Baal. He saw it rain. I mean, he was feeling great. And then discouragement and disappointment as he has to run for his life. He left his servant at Beersheba, which indicated that he was just ready to be done. He didn't want nobody with him, just over it. And he cried out to God, but did you notice it? God doesn't condemn him. And God doesn't yell at him. And God, God doesn't even rebuke him. But he provided sleep, food, and drink. You see, God provided physically for his servant because, friends, God cares just as much as he cares about our spiritual state, he cares just as much about our physical state too. God cares about our bodies and how we each individually need care. And you know what? His care comes to the therapist at the the counseling office, right? And sometimes his care comes to the doctor who's prescribing you the medication that you need or giving you the procedures that you need to live His care comes through the physical exercise that we engage in to help manage our anxieties and our stress. His care comes through the food and the water and the sleep that we need to rejuvenate ourselves. His care comes through the books, right, that we read that help us understand or help us to see the world better, help us to understand ourselves better. His care comes through the people that we are in relationship with and the community that we get to rely on. His care comes through the prayer and the solitude that we engage in. He knew that the journey would be too great for Elijah. And friends, he knows that the journey is too great for us. And ultimately, his care came through him becoming one of us, human. And you know, he didn't walk on this earth removed from suffering or exempt from being someone who suffers. No, in fact, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And at that garden, he fell to his knees in anguish. And he was sweating, not just because it's hot outside, but he's sweating drops of blood because within his body, he feels the the intensity of what he's about to endure. And he tells his disciples to stay awake and pray, and they can't even stay awake. And he tells them that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. I mean, he was alone and he cried out to God, please, Lord, take this cup. And we like to go immediately to the not my will but yours, right? But let's sit. Let's sit in the reality that Jesus, the Son of God, cried out saying, Lord, take this away. And as children of God, We have the freedom and can cry out in honesty, please, Lord, take this away. But we also know that sometimes God doesn't take away. And we are in despair for longer than we want to be in it. And in those times, faithfulness looks like getting up in the morning and putting one foot in front of the other, even if we're wandering. G.K. Chesterton, a famous theologian, put it this way. I had found only one religion 
which dared to go down with me into the depths of myself. There is no resolution in our text, friends. Elijah was still in despair. But it's also true that Jesus experienced God-forsakenness so that in our moments of despair, those lines that I will never leave you nor forsake you run true. They rang true, and they still do. Not even our despair can keep our God away. But it brings him near, and it draws him near because he loves his children. He loves us. No God allows for his followers to be in relationship with him. No other God can go down into the depths of ourselves with us. I mean, Baal required that his prophets cut themselves and die. But our God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, Jesus, through and by his Holy Spirit, enters into relationship with us and welcomes not just a few parts of us, but our whole selves. So what do we do? What does it look like to cry out in our despair? Beginning in 1619, 24 Africans were brought on a ship as cargo to this country. And we know that they would come to this country and endure the painful, inhumane, terrible, and sinful reality of slavery. And the amount of ridicule, violence, and pain and despair that they had to endure is unthinkable. And some of them were committed and they loved God with all that they were. And in the midst of their despair and anguish, do you want to know what these people did? They sang. In the midst of their despair, when they were being sinned against, beaten, told they were less than human, and being treated terribly, they sang. Because they knew that even though their masters can try to take away their dignity, can try to take away their value, their worth, their body, or their families. They could not take away their God. And so they labored, and they toiled, and they sang. And some of those songs are the best songs that we have. Those spirituals are some of the best we have. And so, friends, let us sing with those who came before us and those that are still with us the songs of this spiritual. Take courage, my soul, and let us journey on. Though the night is dark and I am far from home, And thanks be to God, the morning light appears. The storm is passing over. The storm is passing over. The storm is passing over. Hallelujah. The storm is passing over. The storm is passing over. The storm is passing over, hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because the storm is truly passing over. And Lord, though we may be in despair for longer than we want, we ask that you do the work that only you can do in us. 
we thank you for the way that you care for your people. We thank you that no matter what, our despair or whatever it is about us, that you are still with us, that you still draw near to your people. And so, Lord, we ask that you have your way in our lives and that we would walk faithfully with you no matter what that looks like. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.